This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com. All right, if you've looked at the notes at all, you see the title. It's called, uh, Where's Waldo? And I had somebody ask me, what in the world does that mean? Well, guess what? Over the next 20, 25 minutes, we're going to find out. How many of you are familiar with the Waldo books? How many of you are not? Now would be a good time for you that don't to go get some coffee. Because <laughs> you're going to be lost. No, not really. I'll try to fill you in. On Michelangelo's ceiling, all Adam has to do is lift a finger and he can touch the hand of God. God is that close. This is the teaching that the Bible gives us. Yet, really, it's not that simple. At least, it's not that simple for me. Sometimes I wish God would show himself more plainly. Maybe come down from the clouds every once in a while so I could see him in person. Sometimes I lift a finger. Sometimes I really do try to find God. But not much seems to happen. Here are some related questions that people often ask. Why do I sometimes feel God's presence more than I do at other times? When it's so easy to see God all around me, in the mountains, in the sky, in nature, why is it so hard to sometimes sense his presence, especially when I seem to need him the most? Why is it that at times when I pray, I feel no response? I hear no reply from heaven. Am I asking for the wrong things? And how can I know? Why is it at times when I pray, God is just silent. This leads me to think of another humbler work of art. It involves a series of books all centered around the question, where's Waldo? Waldo is never going to make it to the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And we can understand why. He looks nothing like the majestic deity painted by Michelangelo. He is a geeky-looking, glasses-wearing nerd with a striped shirt and a goofy hat. This guy, Waldo, is supposed to be on every page of the book. He remains hidden to the untrained eye. You have to be willing to look for him and to not give up very easily. When you find him, there's a sense of joy and accomplishment, maybe even some relief. In fact, developing the capacity to track him down is part of the point of the book. If it were too easy, if every page consisted of just a giant picture of Waldo's face, no one would ever buy the book. The challenge of the task is what increases the power of discernment. The author said he hides Waldo so children can learn to, quote, be aware of what's going on around them, end quote. Part of what makes it hard to find Waldo is that he's so, while geeky, he's ordinary looking. But sometimes it takes a while to find him. It demands patience. Some people are better at it than others, but some people just simply give up. In the early pages of the books, his presence is obvious. Later on, he's hidden, but the other occupants of the page are giants and sea monsters, so Waldo still stands out. Then eventually, we come to the last and hardest page. By the end, he may be in a room full of Waldos, virtually identical to himself, but the only distraction being that one detail is different, such as He's missing a shoe. 
The author allows rival Waldos to counterfeit his identity. You can be looking right at, right at him, excuse me, without even knowing it. Where's Waldo? Why doesn't he show himself plainly? Why does he hide his face? He may not be absent, but he certainly is elusive at times. He is Waldus Abscanditus, the Waldo who hides himself. Let every day, every moment of your life be another page. God is there, and the Bible makes that very clear. He's on every page of our lives. But the ease with which we may be he may be found changes from one page to the next. A guy who lived centuries ago by the name of Brother Lawrence once wrote, God has various ways of drawing us to him, but sometimes he hides himself. So let's explore the Waldo factor. First, I want to talk to you about rainbow days. Rainbow days. Let's take a look at a guy by the name of Noah. God is easy to find on some pages. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it says, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. The Lord told Noah that he and his family were to be spared from coming destruction, to be the hope of the world. God said, I will make a covenant with you and every living creature from this time on. I will be with you, and I will give you a sign of my covenant, the rainbow. Every time he saw a rainbow in the sky, Noah remembered that he had God's promise. Every time he saw a rainbow, he knew he was not alone. God must have been very clear on that day. God must have been very present to Noah on rainbow days. Next, let's skip down a few generations and let's see that one day God spoke to a guy by the name of Abraham. Abraham would become a blessing to all nations through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But he would not have to do it alone. God said, I will make a covenant with you. From this time on, you will be my people and I will be your God. I will be with you and I will give you a sign of my covenant. Circumcision. Now, we can imagine Abraham saying to himself, now, wait a minute, Noah got the rainbow. <laughs> Couldn't we use a decoder ring or a secret handshake or something like that? <laughs> Abraham's covenant reminder was a little more painful than Noah's. But it was unmistakable. God must have made himself very, very clear that day. On rainbow days, God's presence is hard to miss. I've never had an experience like Noah's or Abraham's, you know, one where God spoke to me face to face. I've never had an encounter with God that involved heaven's special effects department. But I have had moments in my life where I knew I had seen God, even when he remained unseen to my physical eyes. When each of our two sons was born, I was struck with the thought that something more than what had just been a blob of tissue had entered the world. I knew I had, I had been invited to witness the supernatural. When I watched our boys enter the world, I could not not believe. It was as if God himself was in the room. The births of our kids were rainbow days. 
On rainbow days, your life is filled with too much goodness and meaning for you to believe it is simply by chance. On rainbow days, you find yourself wanting to pray, believing that God hears you, and, he's, and you're open to receiving and acting on his word with simple obedience. On rainbow days, God seems to speak personally to you through his word. You find yourself believing that it is a good thing to be alive, and each good thing you see fills you with gratitude toward God who made it. Sin doesn't even look tempting. When you're in this zone, the kids can spill gallons of red Kool-Aid on the carpet, and you laugh patiently, and you remind them that you often spill things too when you were their age. Remember, rainbow days are gifts. It can be easy to take rainbow days for granted or assume that they're going to last forever. But that's a big mistake. I find it easy to sense God's presence when I see pictures or video of the earth from space or see images of a baby in the womb. People who are wise learn to treasure rainbow days as gifts. They store them up to reflect on during days when God seems more elusive. One of the dangers in this, however, is that we may start to think that we have earned rainbow days, that they are a reflection of our wonderful spiritual maturity. And we often lie to ourselves and think that they somehow reflect God's approval of us. We can become judgmental toward people who don't seem to have rainbow days. As we have seen, Waldo is generally easiest to find on the earliest pages. But the farther you go into the book, the harder he is to locate. Something like this goes on in spiritual life. St. John of the Cross wrote that often when someone becomes a Christian, God fills them with a desire to seek him. They want to read the Bible. They're eager to pray. They are filled with a desire to serve. These characteristics are, in a sense, gifts from God to get them moving. They're a kind of a spiritual starter kit. After a while, John of the Cross said, this initial eagerness wears off. God takes away the props so that we can begin to grow true devotion that is strong enough to carry us even when unaided by our emotions. Next, let's look at ordinary days. Ordinary days. During some periods of spiritual life, we fall into kind of a maintenance mode. Life becomes routine. We feel somewhat comfortable. Our involvement in the church is pretty mechanical. We feel as if we are in a bit of a spiritual rut. When problems crop up, our instinctive response is to worry rather than pray. When the kids spill Kool-Aid this time, we're not quite so perky. Waldo is still present on these pages of our lives. We can find him if we remember to look. We tend not to notice him, though. Now, there's an interesting verse found in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, that describes the condition of Israel in the closing days of the time of the judges. Many of the challenges that made the people aware of their dependence on God were behind them. Pharaoh was long since defeated. The Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai are old news, the exciting era of Moses and Joshua was over. And the writer describes the spiritual climate with these words. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Now keep in mind, they were rare, but they were not non-existent. 
the people don't seem to be in a state of major rebellion. The tabernacle is still open for worship. Prayers are still being offered. And sacrifices are still made. But this is not a time of great spiritual adventure. God may be present, but people aren't thinking of him quite as often as they did when the Jordan River was being parted. Sometimes our awareness of God is rare for us too. Next, let's look at spiritual habituation. Spiritual habituation. Psychologists who deal with the study of perception refer to a phenomenon called habituation. The idea is that when a new object or stimulus is introduced to our environment, we are intensely aware of it, but the awareness fades over time. So for instance, when we first begin to wear a new ring, we feel it on our finger constantly. But after a while, we don't even notice that it's there. When people move into a new home, they generally have a list of things that they have to fix or remodel because the, because the sight of them, excuse me, is unacceptable. A few years later, they may still have that same list, but the lack of repair doesn't seem to bother them anymore. They have habituated. One of the greatest challenges in life is fighting what, we, what might be called spiritual habituation. We simply drift into acceptance of life in spiritual maintenance mode. We rationalize it because we think, well, I'm not involved in major sin. I haven't done anything to jeopardize getting into heaven. I'm doing okay. And we forget that Jesus never said, I have come that you might do okay. Okay is not okay. We have a kind of spiritual attention deficit disorder that God will have to break through. When life is on spiritual autopilot, rivers of living water do not flow through us with joy and peace. Instead, it looks like this. I yell at my kids. That's you, not me. <clears throat> Excuse me as I clear my throat. <clears throat> I worry too much about money or my job. I get jealous of people more successful or handsome or attractive than I. I use deception to get out of trouble. I cheat on a test. I pass judgment on people, often when I am secretly jealous of them. Spiritual habituation is in some ways more dangerous than spiritual depravity because it can be so subtle, so gradual. Mostly it involves a failure to perceive or to see. Yet I hold this against you, Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. You have forsaken your first love, Revelation 2.4. Why doesn't God make every day a rainbow day and send proof of his presence all the time? Maybe it's because God wants us to learn to see him in the ordinary rather than be dependent on the extraordinary. Maybe it's because if God regularly satisfied our demand for special effects, it would be like a mother who inadvertently trains her children to pay attention only when she raises her voice. Maybe the reason God lowers his voice is so that we can learn to pay attention. As parents, Karen and I have noticed that when we raise the volume level to get our boys' attention, they seem to begin to ignore us. But when we lower our voices to speak about something we want to keep private, our kids become instantly in tune. Obviously, a few of you have been there. The words we try to whisper will be heard three rooms and two closed doors away. They suddenly develop auditory abilities that the CIA would pay big bucks for. 
I want you to consider this. Maybe ordinary days aren't ordinary at all. But they're actually part of the process that develops a spiritual level of spiritual maturity in us. Perhaps our capacity to pay attention to God, like the capacity to lift weights or to speak a foreign language, only gets stronger when it gets exercised. Number four, reviewing the dailies. There's a filmmaking technique that may teach us something about learning to see God in the ordinary. A cinematographer, Bob Fisher, wrote an article about the need for movie crews to spend time every day reviewing the part of the film that was shot the day before. By delaying production temporarily to review the previous day's work, filmmakers can spot little mistakes while they can still be corrected and can celebrate what is going right. In a similar way, it's very helpful for us to take a few moments to review the dailies with God. You can do this by walking through yesterday in your mind with God and asking where he was present and at work in each scene of your life. Start with the moment you woke up. God was present. What were your first thoughts? What do you think God wanted to say to you in that moment? I've heard many churchgoers over the last nearly 29 years of ministry that they do not know when God is speaking to them or what he's trying to tell them. I think they would do well to review the dailies. They will discover that God is always speaking, but we are rarely in tune with his voice. We're looking for the extraordinary, and God works in the mundane. Number five, spiritual hiding. Sometimes we don't have much of a sense of God's presence in our lives. The truth is that our desire for God can be pretty selective. Sometimes we don't want God around. Anytime we choose to do wrong or to withhold doing right, we choose hiddenness from God. It may be that out of all the prayers that are ever spoken, the most common one, the quietest one, the one that we least acknowledge making is simply this. Don't look at me, God. It was the very first prayer spoken after the fall in the Garden of Eden. God came to walk in the garden, to be with Adam and Eve, and he called out, where are you? Adam said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, so I hid. Don't look at me, God. A business, excuse me, a businessman on the road checks into a motel room. He knows the kind of movies that are available to him. No one will know. His wife won't find out. His kids won't see. First, he has to say a little prayer. God, don't look at me. A mom with an anger problem decides to yell at her kids because she's so frustrated. First, she has to say a little prayer. God, don't look at me. It may be that the most common prayer is simply this. God, don't look at me. A churchgoer who looks forward to the chance to gossip must first say a little prayer. We don't say it out loud, of course. We probably don't admit it even to ourselves. But it's the choice our heart makes. Don't look at me, God. After a while, this prayer can become so ingrained that we're not even aware of it. The story of Samson is a tale of a man who, with enormous potential for good, who became a poster boy for impulse control problems that led him to break every vow he had ever made to God. At the end of his life comes this sad sentence found in Judges 16.20. 
but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Sin always has the consequence of damaging our ability to perceive God in the present moment. Number six, when God seems absent. Now we come to the hardest condition. Sometimes I cannot find Waldo no matter how hard I try. Sometimes it seems that God cannot be found even though we really want to find him. I've had times when I've tried to pray. I've really, really tried. And the ceiling seems like the barrier that my prayers bounce off of. I think about times I've had an important decision to make, telling God I would do whatever he wanted if he would just tell me what to do. And I've heard nothing. Number seven, the good of not knowing. I want to suggest that maybe in his hiddenness, God is up to something. George MacDonald wrote a book about a pastor named Thomas Wingfold, who was troubled by doubt and his inability to know that God was present. He decided to make his life an experiment in simply following Jesus in spite of his doubts. At one point, he was caring for a dying man who had come to faith through his influence. I wish I could come back after I die, the man told Wingfold, so you could be delivered from doubts and know for sure about the faith. Then Wingfold said these words, no, even if you could, I wouldn't want you to. I would not see him one, mo excuse me, one moment before he thought best. I'd rather have the good of not knowing. There is something good in not knowing. I heard of a radio interview some time ago with Mark Levy, who coached the Buffalo Bills to four consecutive Super Bowl appearances, all of which they lost, by the way, two to the Dallas Cowboys, by the way. I can't stop there. I've got to keep going. <laughs> the interviewer asked him, how did you handle the uncertainty of walking onto the field and not knowing the outcome? How did you manage the anxiety? Levy's answer was unforgettable. If you're looking for certainty, he said, you've chosen the wrong game. It's one of the differences between going to the Super Bowl and going to the theater. Everybody knows that Hamlet's going to die. Not knowing doesn't mandate anxiety or stress. Rather, it instills confidence. And confidence is crucial to good performance. But imagine for a moment two football teams walking onto the field knowing ahead of time what the final score of the game is going to be. It'd be really hard to get any adrenaline pumping. Not knowing doesn't mean you're condemned to doubts. Rather, not knowing calls for trust. And trust is crucial to good performance. Uncertainty is vital to the game. Welcome to the human race. It's somehow essential to human life as God has ordained it that we can know what the final score of yesterday was, but not tomorrow. It doesn't mean we're condemned to anxiety. And number eight, and finally, God where you least expect him. You have to trust the author. You have to believe that God has a good reason for keeping his presence subtle. It allows us the capacity for choice that we would never have in the obvious presence of infinite power. People driving near a police car don't speed, not always because their hearts are right, but because they don't want to get a ticket. God wants to be known, but not in a way that overwhelms us. 
that takes away the possibility of love freely chosen. You never know where he'll turn up or whom he'll speak through or what unlikely scenario he will use for his purpose. After the resurrection, Mary Magdalene was looking right at Jesus, but she thought he was the gardener. God is always present, but apparently he often shows up in unexpected ways. The image of God that Michelangelo created became famous. Probably when people try to picture God in their minds, this image is what they think of. It speaks of the kind of majesty and strength that we associate with the God of the universe. But when God did come down in the form of Jesus to be with us, Emmanuel, he didn't look like the artwork. It's as if he put on Waldo's goofy-looking glasses and a striped shirt. He looked ordinary. Isaiah 53 says he had no majesty that we should be attracted to him. He was weak enough that he was called despised and rejected by men. So God came down and was born in a manger and got a job in the carpentry field. God was on every page, but no one recognized him because everyone was expecting somebody who looked like the guy we see on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Where's Waldo? Well, I contend that he's right here. Sometimes he's right around the corner. He's positioned where you least expect him. He's closer than you think. Let's pray. This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.